0: to West of Middle East, a podcast about Middle Eastern changemakers living in the West. I'm your host, Niaz Kastravi. In season two, we feature changemakers working in and around the field of education, be it through traditional academia, technology, the arts, advocacy, or movement building. Each episode shines a spotlight on changemakers doing everything from the ordinary to the extraordinary, humanizing their triumphs and struggles and offering a more real narrative of who they are to counter the often sensationalized and misconceived portrayals of these communities in mainstream media. West of Middle East is produced by the Neda Nobari Foundation an organization supporting social and environmental justice through the arts and education. Never forget what you are, for surely the world will not. Make it your strength, then it can never be your weakness. Armor yourself in it, and it will never be used to hurt you. For all you Game of Thrones fans out there, That is a quote from George R.R. Martin on identity. Many of us in America have hyphenated identities. We are Iranian Americans, Arab Americans, Muslim Americans, Mexican Americans, African Americans, and so many other variations of a mixed identity. Hyphenated identities can help immigrants resolve very personal questions of who they are now what their new life in a new home means to them, while at the same time honoring their culture, heritage, and ancestors. I sit down with Dr. Persis Karim, professor, poet, and the inaugural chair of the Center for Iranian Diaspora Studies at San Francisco State University. As an Iranian-French-American, Dr. Karim's work centers on the hyphenated spaces and bolstering these identities to change narrative and challenge stereotypes about immigrants and those with roots outside of America. Persis begins by sharing her own story of being a hyphenated American.
1: My parents were both what I call accidental immigrants who came here after the Second World War Both of them came from occupied countries, France and Iran, respectively. And I think that they didn't really initially expect to become Americans. But after having six kids and I being the last of those six kids, I think by then their rootedness in this country was all but complete And having children affected that, of course. I grew up in a household where I think my parents were not completely certain how to raise us because they came from pretty different backgrounds. What I think they had in common was the idea of a kind of, you know, work ethic, the immigrant sensibility to improve their lives, the desire to give their children, you know, the sort of basic, expectations of what it was to be an American. I think the American dream was a big part of their socialization as immigrants. But I think that I always experienced the kind of accentedness of my childhood and my growing up through the lens of them not quite being comfortable in this country. And also because they were from two different cultures. And because at that time growing up, the idea of owning all the haves or parts of yourself wasn't really a a common sensibility. I think people were accustomed to assimilating, you know, to sort of disappearing into the sort of idea of what American culture was as opposed to accenting those parts of you that were from other places.
0: And then... One part of her identity all of a sudden grew when her father's family migrated to the U.S.
1: I think by virtue of the fact that we had family and relatives who came from Iran after my father made the journey to the U.S., that in some ways informed my sense of belonging much more prominently to Iranian culture, and um, that part of my hyphenated sensibility was... Um, more pronounced by the food, you know, we grew up eating Persian food. And I think that now looking back, um, that feeling of not fitting in was, you know, always a little bit uncomfortable. But as I grew older, and now as an adult, I'm exceedingly grateful for that experience, because I think that it has enlarged the horizon of how I look at the world. And so those mix of cultures. Some more prominent, some more deliberate. And the rituals and the language that was surrounding me, those all produced in me a sort of curiosity that I'm really, really grateful to have had in my childhood and also as part of my growing up.
0: Like many immigrant families and many Iranian families in particular, Persis grew up knowing that there was no choice but to pursue an education.
1: The desire to see your children receive an education was kind of hammered into all of my siblings and me um, by my father, in part because he had you know he had the experience of getting a degree at the University of Tehran when the university first opened in the early twentieth century, and I think that he saw that as one of the gifts of being an immigrant and Also, one of the gifts of being a Californian was the idea of an affordable and good, solid education was part of the experience of my childhood. The literature part of it was, I think, very much influenced by my father because he came from Iranian culture where the idea of literature and poetry, and I think the sort of language of literature is part of the the everyday expression in people's lives. So I was always intrigued by the fact that my father communicated a lot about poetry. He would recite Omar Khayyam regularly. He often also recited Proverbs, Persian Proverbs, that I think are also part of the play of the language. And he couldn't access English in quite the same way. So I was always intrigued by that. Like it affected my curiosity. So I would say, you know, what do you mean putting watermelons under your arms? Uh, Because he would translate some of these proverbs. And I found it very poetic. But also I saw how being a foreigner and being an immigrant, um, language and literacy and the ability to communicate with others is a really important thing. And so for me, it was like this idea of wanting to be understood and wanting to make sense of some of the experiences that I had. So I was very young, interested in writing and keeping a journal and reading poetry and writing awful poetry, of course. Um, but I'd say that, you know, that, that curiosity and that passion for literature really came through my father's um, interest in poetry.
0: Persis describes a major turning point and evolution of her work when the Iranian revolution and hostage crisis happened.
1: It's ironic to talk about that because, you know, it's almost 40 years ago. And in some ways, many of the things that occurred at that moment in history are occurring again with the same, you know, vociferous attitudes. And um, I would say that it's affecting... You know, not just Iranians, but Arabs, all people of the Middle East. So it's painful to think about how that moment in history after the hostage crisis, in some ways, was the seminal moment for a lot of the attitudes that have been whipped up again in this particular moment in history. Um, I think that what I saw was probably what a lot of people saw, that sort of sudden of headlines that were happening on a regular basis um, that were vilifying Iranians, my sense was like, wow, you know, these are my people, you know, that they're talking about. I have relatives and they seem like perfectly lovely human beings. And so this kind of rush of uh, feelings about how could a people that has have been so invisible suddenly be so vilified and i think that, that i experienced it very acutely as a young teenager because when you're 16 or 17 you're trying to figure out who you are separate from your parents and because i had grown up you know largely in these white suburbs of the east bay here in the san francisco bay area I didn't really have any community of Iranians except my extended family.
0: And for her, she began to see common threads in American history with other people of color and immigrant communities.
1: I saw, like, how similar it seemed to other, you know, moments in history when people were vilified because of a national event, like the Japanese-American or the Chinese experience in the U.S., Um, So it made me say, huh, this doesn't quite seem fair, right, correct, humane. Um, And rather than run away from it and disappear, you know, uh, and in shame, I was kind of like, I'm going to figure this out. I want to understand this. And that was unusual because most of my siblings, I think, had been sort of doing that, sort of disappearing into the fabric of kind of mainstream Anglo-U.S. culture. And I started asking the questions like, you know, this is important. I need to understand it. So I guess that began sort of my journey to both personally understand an aspect of my identity that I wanted to deepen, but also um, in a way launched my deep need to make sure that other people had a more nuanced and uh, you know, humane understanding about this country that seemed to me to be producing beautiful things, art, music, poetry, which is what I kind of got from my father, and also this warm, affectionate culture that I've experienced in my extended family. So I couldn't quite see how um, a country that had only marginally been represented in my life, suddenly was made into this big boogeyman. And um, I think I was really appalled by that sense that, hey, that could be me, you know?
0: I asked her about what it's like to be an Iranian-American in the current political context. How does it compare to 40 years ago?
1: Almost 40 years of history that have transpired have produced more solid, recycled, and repeated uh, representations of Iranians and Middle Eastern people in general that are, in some ways, both easier and more difficult to dispel. Um, easier in the sense of, I think Amer- Americans are smarter now than they were in 1979 and 1980. They were more naive about their place in the world. Um And I think to some degree, the course of U.S. foreign policy has made it so people can't pretend that the United States is, you know, just a victim of what's happening. On the other hand, uh, what makes it difficult is the, you know, the ignorance and the lack of curiosity about these countries that we've been engaged with. Unfortunately, in really negative ways, so Afghanistan, Iran, Lebanon, Syria, um, our foreign policy has been, in some ways, really embedded with the events in those nations. And um, I think that we've chosen to only look at one aspect of the history, which is what those involvements have produced, right? Animosity, terrorism, um, Anger, pain, suffering, um, without the attention to the idea that, you know, my country, the United States, is in fact helping to propel events that will have, unfortunately, a negative impact on Americans. The Islamophobia, the anti Arab, and I'll say Arab because I think in some ways it's even more pronounced for Arabs than it is for Iranians, those feelings have been sort of collapsed into like you can't separate the religion from the culture, you can't separate an Arab from an Iranian. It becomes this big monolithic um, discomfort with people from that part of the world. And I think that I feel now more solidarity and identification with other communities Um, Arabs and Muslims, even though I myself am not identified as a Muslim, I feel like my name just becomes a de facto association with being a Muslim.
0: Persis is disappointed at the nearly complete avoidance of highlighting what's positive and beautiful about people and cultures that are often vilified in popular media discourse.
1: There's been such a disproportionate emphasis on the negativity about what's happening in those events over there without an attention to the contributions that Arabs and Iranians and Muslims are bringing to the United States. Um, so I think it's it's beyond stereotypes. It's a kind of omission um, and an erasure of what people have been through both collectively and
0: individually. And she's right. If you look at any of the negatively-stereotyped communities you'll find a countless number of successful poets, writers, teachers, artists, businessmen, and women all contributing something beautiful to this country. Persis sees some change in the way our communities are responding to a climate of increased discrimination and hostility. But also the really
1: positive things that, say, Iranians have brought to the United States. I mean, I don't need to tell you, there's like, you know, many, many successful Iranians who got their educations here and now are, you know, leading uh, Fortune 500 companies. So that's a measure of their success. But also there are writers and poets and painters and artists um, who are affecting the culture of the United States in beautiful ways. And I have a, you know, a hunger to see that made visible, you know. And that's the beautiful part of what I feel is my country, the United States, is the possibility that it can be affected by the world and affected by these cultures. And um, unfortunately, I think the, the media has, you know, recycled those images. And now, of course, politicians have opportunistically used those same stereotypes in the case of like, passing this Muslim ban. Um, And I think it has dire consequences for the uh, future of this country and for the future of a country that I think my parents immigrated to with a very different sensibility. Like it was open and welcoming and um, there were, you know, opportunities that they never could have imagined in their own countries. And those seem to be closing. And I'm really sad about that.
0: Persis places great emphasis on the role higher education can play in helping often marginalized individuals and communities develop their voice and really their power. I think higher education is
1: absolutely critical, especially because I think what has happened since the 1970s, not just in a place like California, but I'd say all over the United States, is it's the space where people get... Opportunities to interact and meet and hear people's stories who are different from their own. So, whether it's through the paradigm of race or the paradigm of immigration, young people in some ways have this really critical moment where they realize, like, you know, their experience is only one aspect of this country. And so, for me, I see both my role as a professor, but also having had the benefit of a public education, for example, as the opportunity to be introduced to critical discourse about power and the world and policies that affect individual lives as probably the most important thing that I got from having gotten my education And I would say as a woman, that's even more the case because one of the things I'm constantly aware of is how for females, the idea of an education isn't just the degree. It's about the idea of finding a voice. And I think what has happened since the 1970s say, in literature or in social sciences and humanities is the idea that there's been a space opened for the critical study of race and gender and ethnicity in a way that there wasn't before the 1960s. And that, in some ways, has been the byproduct of things like the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement. Um, But it's come so far now in 2017 to a point where I see young people asking questions about the possibilities of uh, connecting, for example, intersectionality as a sort of uh, paradigm for understanding the different ways that people um, identify and experience life um, as a really a uh, great opportunity for people to investigate things that I think when I was a kid, when I was in high school, we, we didn't even talk about it, right? And I'm talking about things like um, homosexuality or um, you know interracial relationships. Those things, they're, they were a given that you shouldn't talk about them. Now we talk about them and we talk about them much more freely. And I feel like young people, they are leading the way. in that conversation and I think higher education in a way cements the possibilities for those conversations to occur and it's why I'm such a big believer I think in um, not just higher education but public higher education today I think one of the things that has really uh become so visible to me as a professor is the lack of accessibility and affordability for young people to get a a higher education experience, Um, and that that is the byproduct of privatization and the defunding of education, particularly over the last 20 years. Um, And it's very directly connected to um, the trend towards uh, disparate income distribution, the defunding of public funding publicly funded programs like education, like housing, like transportation, all the things that really sort of make it possible for young people to actually go to school. Um, And I can see the difference in my students, Um, you know, and I could say that some of that's the internet, some of it's the distractibility they have of cell phones. But I would say fundamentally, um, the... The problem with higher education today is that it has de-emphasized the experience of higher education as an exploration um, and an opportunity for young people to sort of pursue their dreams, um, their interests, and those interests beyond the, the mere practicality of a degree
0: for the sake of a job. Limiting access to education seems like a giant step in the wrong direction. And PERSIS links these trends directly to larger issues that go beyond the education space. And I think that's a,
1: a byproduct also of the fact that we've expended tremendous resources on war and conflict and occupation of other countries. And I I wish that was more of a conversation. I wish people would understand that what's happened to... um The resources for public programs is directly related to the amount of resources we're spending on things that do not benefit the common people.
0: Persis reflects on how narratives and perceived identities of impacted communities have changed after the election of Donald Trump and his anti-immigrant policies, particularly the Muslim ban, a presidential executive order aimed at limiting immigration from several majority Muslim countries.
1: What's lost is this idea of this kind of humanity, common humanity, um, that regardless of what culture, ethnicity, or uh, national origin you have, you have the same kinds of needs and desires as someone else. And I think the travel ban, really, it's like, for me, it's the most offensive part of the travel ban, is that it closes off curiosity about people who... We absolutely need to be curious about, because they're fleeing war and violence and oppression and um, you know governmental surveillance in more radical numbers than we 've ever seen before, and to be so closed towards them um, because of their national origin really precludes the idea like, hey, these are people who are like you and me. They're just trying to get by. They're just trying to live. They're just trying to like get out of the way of bombs and gunshots. And I think that's where I feel a deep uh, responsibility to create a space for those narratives to be heard and spoken. That's the role that literature and art and film and any medium by which people can express themselves is so critical um, because it speaks through the human voice and through the human experience, not through these kind of larger narratives about governments and oppressors and, um, you know, and those who are perpetrating violence. And the violence is not, you know, just individuals or terrorist groups, it's also states. And I think we have a tendency to overlook the kind of everyday violence that's mitigated by states and state entities.
0: But Persis believes the perception of and the reason for the travel ban goes much deeper. The
1: travel ban is not occurring in a vacuum. I think that it's occurring in a moment when people are starting to feel uh, the scarcity of resources Um, both in public programs and jobs. uh, And I think this is the cycle of history that we know, we've seen it before, is that when people feel there's scarcity for themselves, they are more willing to entertain the possibility that someone else is taking something from them and that that group of people or that
0: uh, entity um, is a threat but her work and the work of those in her field offer a part of the solution.
1: I think that goes back to this idea that narratives um, are constructed, and so you have to deconstruct them, or you have to insert an alternative narrative in order to present to people like the idea that, like, no, you know what? A Muslim or an Iranian or an Arab is so much more than what you see in the media.
0: So why should people care and listen to our stories and the stories of other immigrants and people from the Middle East? Well,
1: I guess, you know, at its heart, the United States is a country that is both, on the one hand, a place where people can reinvent and remake themselves in the aftermath of terrible things, and on the other hand, that they have to overcome the prejudices and Racism and stereotyping that are also simultaneously being thrown at them. Um, and I think that, you know, when people think of the United States, you know, in a context outside of what you and I perhaps experience, is they think of the the possibility that this country represents. And so I feel like that's the part of me that feels that people should care, is the possibility that they have as individuals is the same possibility that those people who are coming here are seeking. Um, and they're seeking it because that's what we've projected into the world, that we are a country where freedom and um, opportunity and openness are part of the sort of national ethos of the United States. And I see my parents were really, they, they didn't just buy it, they believed it, okay? And I think belief is part of it. Um, and I think I'm still holding on to that because I have a child and I want him to grow up thinking, not that this is the best country on the planet, no. But that this is a country that has the possibility to be better all the time. And that's how I think a young country, um, and especially a country that has a pretty, you know, violent past, um, has a lot more to work with
0: because the narrative hasn't been closed yet. And most of her work focuses on our complex sense of being.
1: I feel like the hyphen is where I live. I live on the margin of several cultures. And I mean the margin in a positive way, too. Like, I want to sort of put a spin on the idea that the margin is a bridge. It's a connective. It's the connective tissue. Um, And that it, in, in a way, really opens up the idea, like, the United States has this you know, like we think of cuisine as like, oh, it's so great that we live in a town where we can get Thai food and Chinese food and Persian food and Lebanese food. But what about all the culture that creates those cuisines? That's what I want to know about. Um, And for me, I'm really interested in the traces. And I think I've really um, come to terms with my own experience of being an Iranian American is the idea that the traces of Iranian culture live in me, meaning ways my father communicated something about that culture that I can't always put my finger on. You know, it's how he's, you know, referred to me as John or June. You know, um, or the food, or the sense of togetherness we had at the dinner table. Those traces are what I look for in the literature because I think that they are the accents of people's experience growing up in this country. And I think also because of this sort of rupture of history that Iranians experience after 1979, where people left Iran, you know, sometimes leaving behind their homes and their belongings and came here, um, which we're seeing repeated in, you know, people coming from places like Syria and Iraq, um, means that that narrative sort of gets lost. And so I want to pick it up for them, give them an opportunity to say, what are the ways in which that um, past is not solely erased. It's not erased by the events in the home country and it's not erased by the events or the vilification or the lack of interest in this country. So for me, finding in the literature of the Iranian American experience is this idea that like, people are preserving and communicating something about um, the past, but also about the future. And I look for good writing like any editor would, but I also look for the urgency of the story. And I think the urgency of the story sometimes is the idea that it must be told. And you can feel that, you know, that, you know, it's sometimes people are not as accomplished writers, but they have something that
0: is really essential to tell and to share with others. I ask her in what ways she sees herself as a pioneer and a change maker.
1: I think one of the most important things that I feel that I have done and want to continue to do is to um, validate the stories that are often rendered invisible by, you know, a kind of oversimplistic narrative. Or um, by the idea that sometimes people feel that if you don't, if you're not a celebrity, uh, your story doesn't matter. And for me, both as a teacher and a professor in the classroom, I'm I feel that empowering people to feel that their voice and their story is so important, and so important not to have it made invisible by someone else capturing their narrative or choosing to represent them. Um, And, you know, I think that's what stereotypes do. They're basically hijacking someone's narrative. Um, And that the importance of doing that and making people feel like there's space for all these stories, like there isn't one story, there are many stories. If I were to capture that idea of a change maker, I would say, I believe in the step the power of the story, but I believe in the power of the many stories. Um, and I think that's also what makes me feel deeply American. Um, that my Americanness is because I believe in all the other stories that line up next to mine and make me feel like I'm part of something that's kind of global.
0: In 2017, Persis was named the inaugural chair for the newly established Center for Iranian Diaspora Studies at San Francisco State University. I'm in this unique
1: position to emphasize the idea of the diaspora. And um, I think that there's a, what comes with it is this recognition that um, diaspora means a lot of things to a lot of people. But for me, it means the idea of, um, something coming in and something going out and that it's a fluid uh, process of culture and people and stories that are coming into the space, say, of the United States, but they're also resonating in the bigger world, going out, going back to places like Iran or connecting to other um, immigrant and diaspora communities. And so for me, the center represents the idea that... um, we are engaged with the process of becoming. What is it, What has happened to all those millions of Iranians who've left Iran since 79 in the last 40 years? What has happened to their children who are being raised in this country with that sense that they're neither Iranian nor fully American? They have some kind of sensibility that is both. Um, and I think it's important because I do think that um, Iran and Iranians have been erased a lot by the narrative of the tension between the U.S. and Iran. We tend to think of diaspora as literally the bodies that migrate rather than the ideas and the cultures. So I want to also kind of move the idea of diaspora to a, a much larger realm about talking about people, but talking about also what people bring with them rather than also talking about it exclusively in terms of a national identity, um, putting that Iranian diaspora in conversation with other diasporas. So, for example, Vietnamese uh, or Cuban, right, who share these moments of rupture. And um, how do they see themselves vis-a-vis the, the mother country, I think is important. There isn't one Iranian experience of migration or, uh, you know, one Iranian-American experience. There are many.
0: Persis explains the concept of the diaspora and the importance of diaspora studies.
1: People use the term diaspora primarily in this idea of the origin of a group of people who left in large numbers and went somewhere else. So we often look at the Jewish diaspora as the sort of first major human migration of Jewish people, say, out of Egypt into Europe, North Africa, and then being dispersed again uh, at another critical moment when the uh, Spanish Inquisition happened, and then at another critical moment when uh, the Holocaust occurred. Um, those large migrations of people uh, do two things. One, they force people to remake themselves and reinvent themselves in new contexts. But they also um, become iterations of a different Jewish-ness or Jewish identity or Iranian-ness or Iranian identity somewhere else. You're forced to make all these choices both individually and collectively, both for your survival, but also um, because you know that culture. So, I see the the idea of diaspora as a kind of mediation of all kinds of choices and um, experiences, some positive, some negative. And the reasons it's important to think of a diaspora differently than immigration is that it has a more circular function i.e. going back to what i said about um there's a movement in there's a movement out and that is i think of it as concentric circles resonating um and that diaspora gives people the opportunity to move around and we are living in an age when people move around a lot more freely than they did say even 50 60 years ago people made a choice to immigrate to the United States and that was it and the motherland was cut off. Now we have the internet, we have um, global travel, we have the opportunity to talk to people even through technology that we never had before. So it changes our psychological sense of what it is to both belong and not belong. And I think in some ways diaspora studies is uh, much more akin to the idea of multiple belongings than immigration is, because it has this idea of a departing and an arriving.
0: And the center is really the culmination of the experience of Iranians in America for the past four decades.
1: As far as the center and uh, the emergence of this field, I think the center is in some way uh, uniquely posited as an outgrowth of the last 40 years because Iranians have a lot more difficulty going to Iran to do research and to study Iran than they did 45 years ago um, because of the tension between the United States and Iran.
0: Persis sees the center playing a leading role in the international educational context. In
1: 2019, I'm going to be hosting the first international conference on Iranian diaspora studies. There have been um, many conferences on Iranian studies, um, uh, but this one in some ways I hope will be um, articulating the idea of a kind of arrival about the necessity of thinking about diaspora as a very useful paradigm for the study of Iran outside of Iran. This conference in 2019 that we'll be hosting in San Francisco will be bringing together scholars from Europe, Iran, Latin America, Australia, UK, all centers of the globe uh, where Iranians live and do work and do scholarship and to basically kind of assess Wow, what happened in the last 40 years? And 40 years is the timeline because of the 79 revolution being the sort of point of rupture in recent diasporas. The conference will be um, organized around different thematic issues, um, i.e., you know, the arts and humanities, social sciences, um, and specific um, cases. The conference will also include a component of film and art. We're going to be hosting an art exhibit with artists of the Iranian diaspora at the Minnesota Street Projects. Um, We're working on the details for that. And we hope that this conference will in some ways really uh, give prominence to a field that has been emerging. Like I've seen it change tremendously in the last 10 years. There are young people who are doing scholarship that I couldn't have imagined when I was going to graduate school. And it's very exciting. And I think they're influencing their fields as well. So the field of sociology and race has been really influenced by some of the work of some of these younger scholars and um, you know other fields like filmmaking and music um, where people are introducing aspects of Iranian culture and fusing it with... Um, either the, the the field and the discipline generally, or also using those disciplines and fields to study something about the Iranian context outside of Iran.
0: We all live at the intersection of many identities, be it cultural, racial, religious, gender, sexuality, or other defining characteristics. Rather than letting that be what divides us or makes us falter, we can see it as a source of power and of what makes us unique and special. As Persis reminds us through her work and her words, discovering who we are, learning to use our own voice, is simply about accepting the process of doing so. It is our own individual journey. You've been listening to West of Middle East. You can hear more episodes about changemakers from the Middle East diaspora at westofmiddleeast.org or check us out on iTunes. If you like what you heard, please rate us on iTunes. This podcast is created by the Neda Nobari Foundation, an organization supporting social and environmental justice through the arts and education. Our engineer is Rick McRae of Conscious Studios. Music is composed by Loga, Ramin Torkiyan, and Azam Ali. And I'm your host, Niaz Kasravi. If you want to share your thoughts about this podcast or have ideas for future seasons, email us at comments at east.org. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time.